Welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are here with you on this journey every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. In today's interview with Dr. Robert Weiss, we learn what it means to be, quote, an addict, how narcissistic tendencies perpetuate addiction, and what our upbringing has subconsciously taught us about healthy relationships and dependency. Dr. Rob is an expert in the treatment of addiction and adult intimacy disorders, and the author of Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, which seeks to shift the word codependency from a culture that casts blame on those who are struggling to help a loved one navigate mental illness or addiction to a space where they are allowed to be close to that person and encourage their recovery, yet not enable their addiction. I was going to ask you, how would you define healing? But I guess I'll also ask you, how do you define addiction? Yes, we didn't talk about that. So I work with things like sex and drugs. And uh, people will say, um, okay, well, is how, is it having too much sex or partying too much? Is that an addiction? I'm like, well, maybe, maybe not. It depends on how it's affecting the person's life. Mm-hmm. But we don't determine addiction by how often you use or how much. or right. We don't look at it by numbers. And then people will ask, well, but what kind of gambling, what kind of sex, what kind of alcohol, you know, and it's like, well, what vodka is addictive and whiskey isn't, it doesn't work that way. So um, what we really have to get to is addiction, the definition of addiction is not determined by a quantity of anything. It's about a quality of something. It's the quality of the person's life. If I am actively drinking on a regular basis and my relationships are working and work is working and people are happy with me and I feel good about myself and I'm exercising and life is going great, then I don't care how much that person drinks or you shouldn't care how much I drink because it's not affecting my ability to function. But the qualitative view of addiction is when my behavior or the substance is impairing my ability to have a good relationship when it's impairing my workplace performance when i'm not able to get through school because i'm spending all night gaming and looking at porn that's when we begin to look at addiction is when the person's ability to function in multiple areas of their life is is either failing or beginning to go downhill one of the requirements for something to be an addiction is it has to cause pleasure it has to cause escape and pleasure so heroin alcohol valium gambling, sex, eating, they all are pleasurable activities, pleasurably distracting activities. I understand that over time, addicts no longer feel the pleasure. But nonetheless, addicts are using a pleasurable activity to escape and disappear. So 
the question is, well, I don't understand. I have a couple of glasses of wine and I'm not an alcoholic and he has a couple of glasses of wine and he is. What's the difference? And the difference is, is that you may go have a drink to enjoy your time with your friends, to relax for the evening, the why, right? I'm relaxing for the evening. I am spending time with friends. I'm enjoying my time. I'm, uh, I'm on a date. I'm a little nervous. The two of us are relaxed. We have had alcohol in our, in our culture since time immemorial, and it has served as a way to socially bond and date and all that. But alcoholics don't drink to date or socially bond or have fun. Alcoholics drink to feel okay. So imagine we're going to a dinner party and you're having a couple of glass of wine because you're relaxing and having fun and everyone else around there is having a couple of glass of wine basically for this reason of fun, relaxation and connection and I'm drinking to just feel okay. So when somebody takes a primary pleasurable experience like sex or gambling or gaming and they're no longer doing it for the primary experience but to escape, to disappear, to use fantasy and pleasure to addictively disappear, that's, a whole, that's an addiction. So going back to... How how would you define addiction? Kind of how would a, I define addiction? I yeah, would define or what does it mean to be an addict? How would you define that in a Well, addiction is defined by lack of choice. I no longer can say I'm not going to drink tonight or I'm not going to smoke pot tonight or I'm not going to pick up a prostitute tonight. I just I or I might say it, but I can't keep the commitment. And so there are really three signs of addiction traditionally. One is loss of control, which means I say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I promise you. I promise myself. I make all kinds of wishes and contracts, and I can't not do it. I just can't. The other, another sign is I'm having consequences. You know, my boss noticed I was looking at porn at work, or my girlfriend found such and such. or So trouble is brewing, and it's directly related to my behavior. And the third real sign is I'm not paying any attention to that. I continue the drinking, the sexing, the gambling, and I know that it's causing problems and I do it anyway. I just blame someone else or something else. So um, I, I no longer have control over it. I've lost control. I keep returning to it despite the consequences that I'm having. And it's causing real life consequences in my life and I don't seem to care. Those are really the three biggies around addiction. How would you define healing? Well, I think there are various levels of healing for an addict. And the first one really has to do with becoming conscious that what I thought was okay isn't. That's sort of the first, like I thought my drinking was okay. I thought my second, I thought I could get away. I'm not. And then the next step is, well, I guess I better do something about it. And then everything sort of flows from there. If the person, and, and let me say something about, I've been a treatment provider for 25 years. And I can tell you that I can work miracles with people at all kinds of levels, but there's one thing that I cannot do. I cannot create motivation. If you just want to get out of your consequences, you just want an easy ride, you just want to, if you don't really want to do the hard work of looking at yourself and getting well, that's the one thing I can't do for you. I can support you in the hard work, I can give you the hard work, and I can help you learn and grow. But if you just want to take an easy pass through the process, you're wasting our time. Because there is no easy pass through the process of recovery. It's long, hard work, and it takes commitment and dedication and a knowledge that you're not going to do it perfectly and you've got to keep plugging along anyway. I think that's really interesting because going back to it's, you know, the why are you doing it on, on, on both ends on that healing side, um, the, the motivation and the, the real cause, whether they're external or looking within first and it coming from the right reasons for it to really have a, a chance at. Well, here's a good thought for you. As long as the problem is outside of me, then I don't have to do anything. So if I got a DUI because of that stupid cop or because uh, it's that neighborhood that has all of these red light things, you know, if I blame everyone else and everything, then I'm still in my illness. The first step is really saying, oh, my goodness, 
I'm responsible for some of this mess and I need to do something about it. Going off of the the healing, when people are in the recovery process, which some refer to as kind of an ongoing process, a lot of times people refer to themselves as an addict, separate as being somebody who is currently using or abusing, um, as it kind of being a, a title or a something that you have to constantly, you know, or maintain or, yeah. Um, so I'm wondering to, you know, does the label stay with you forever? And, so. and, and, you know, what is kind of, how does that help people or, or perhaps harm? And this is a very cultural question, right? Yeah. This is about culture. Yeah, so exactly. I, I will speak to it from an addiction sort of culture perspective, which is that for me and the people I work with, I believe um, to say an addict is to say I am an addict is a relief. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I can finally understand what has been wrong with my life. Why it hasn't? It's not that I'm a bad person. It's not that I don't have love in my. It's just that I have had this huge uh, monkey on my back. So I think just in the beginning, the idea that I have an addiction for many people means oh, okay, I have a problem that can be identified, mm-hmm. and there is a solution for it, and that gives me hope. But let me explain this to you. Look, if I said to you, um, I'm really sorry, um, but you have diabetes and you're going to need to check your insulin and take, you know, how would you see that? Would you say, oh my God, I can't believe that person gave me this label of diabetic. I'm going to have to bear it my whole life. Or would you say, oh, okay, now I know what's wrong with me and now I know what to take and what to do to get better. Problem is not the, the word addiction. It's the stigma we have around it. To me, claiming that I'm an addict is simply saying, oh, I have a problem and I know that I am responsible for that problem and I need to take regular steps in my life to make sure it doesn't reoccur. But to me, that's no different than someone who's depressed and realizes that they have to deal with depression through their lives and it may reoccur and they have to do self-care in a certain way. So to me, the label of addiction is an acknowledgement that I have a problem that I need to deal with the rest of my life, but it's also the hope that if I deal with it, I can have a great life. Addiction is a mental health problem. It's chronic. It's a brain problem. It reoccurs under stress. It's no different than depression or anxiety. But because of the cultures, the addiction community culture and the medical mental health community culture and how they evolved, we have these two silos in our in our culture of addiction and mental health. And if we were able to see addiction as a addiction, sorry, if we're able to see addiction where it belongs, I believe, which is as under mental health, then it wouldn't be a problem to say. I mean. Would you say I shouldn't acknowledge that I'm bipolar or I shouldn't say that I have anxiety? I don't think so. It's only if you see addiction as something to do with your personality or your morality or that it's a bad word. If you see it simply as a a word for a disorder, then it's good to know what you got so you can fix it. That's how I look at it. I think it's amazing for people to, you mentioned badge of honor, to kind of wear it in that way that also in acknowledging it for themselves and the people around them helps to destigmatize it. Well, what you said about what is healing, I think what you're saying now touches on what the, the, the real, the sort of, um, what you're, what you're touching on now touches on not just healing from addiction, but becoming a, a good person, which is once you have worked on these issues for long enough, you begin to realize that there are other people who have them and you can help them. And one of the tenets of addiction work is that you pass on what you've gotten. Yeah. I just think it's powerful to, you know, even around other people, if sometimes, you know, somebody says, why don't you drink? 
to to give the frank answer mm-hmm. and to you know have oh. people know that and to well well yeah I, you're right I, I think that for me addiction is a badge of courage because it means and I think for those of us who've done this work it means that I did a lot of shitty things I hurt a lot of people I ruined parts of my life I ruined other people's lives as an addict it wasn't pretty but I don't regret any of that now because. I understand where it came from. Yeah. I understand that I was doing the best that I could. And now I have a whole opportunity to live a different life and treat people differently and do it differently if I'm able to see that that was really a stage in my emotional progression. It's really tough, though, because I'm I'm now thinking of a story uh, somebody told me and they were a recovering alcoholic in the sense of they had been sober, I think it was for like 10 plus years, mm-hmm. just how it's referenced for people listening as a kind of long-term the badge um and she became close with uh one of her kids's mothers and you know they would hang out and the kids would have play dates and they you know got close and she confided in her and you know one day mentioned this only to find that soon after the mother of that um the child's friend you know, decided that maybe it wasn't a good idea for them to have playdates at her house and that maybe she shouldn't be the only one supervising the kids. And so there is just obviously this huge stigma um, staring people in the face. That And it's a good question you ask, you know, if I have depression or anxiety or other mental health issues, if I'm hanging out with friends and I disclose that to them and then they distance themselves from mm, me, well, that says yeah. not a lot about the relationship. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that hurts my kids, too. Um, if the family and that other kid go away because this person judged me. And I say judge someone on their actions, not on the words they use. Going both ways, you know. Um, judge people. And this is, I think, a good thing for partners who are involved with addicts. Is you will often hear, oh, I promise, baby, I promise, promise, I'll do it this way, that way. Or I really see in the light. Or, and I know how much you want to believe that, you know, because you love this person, you want to be with this person. But the bottom line is once someone has really crossed the line into addiction, you can only trust their behavior. Um, when addicts' lips are moving, they are lying most of the time if they're not in recovery. And that's because they're not right thinking. They are troubled. And so, you know, if you're looking for health and healing in someone you love, look to, are they going to therapy? Are they going to meetings? Are they staying sober? Are they being kinder? Are they more engaged in family life? Are they more present? How are they acting and treating you? That is going to tell you so much of what you need to know. Somebody I know who is again recovering and had issues with drug dependency um, to an extreme extent, Uh, once said that kind of once an addict, always an addict, but in the sense of that people search for other things to become addicted to and that might not be damaging, but that you can then find yourself, you know, training for Ironmans as a, a kind of this dependency or this thrill it's it's like seeking that it's high the neurobiological yeah. change that i can that, that i can bring about through an activity or a fantasy and yeah you know i can move from i, I mean we addiction can be whack-a-mole you know that game where you're, you're like you know the thing pops up and you hit it and then the other thing you never know where the thing's going to pop up and so i you know I, I oftentimes i'm working with a man who has uh, issues around sexual behavior, he stops the behavior, gains 15 pounds. You know, I work with a woman who's been drinking, she stops drinking, but she starts exercising compulsively. And so, yeah, when we do addiction work, and uh, meaning treatment, it is important to be aware of the multidimensional 
fact, which is, yes, the person's addicted to the alcohol, but even more than that, they're looking for escape. And if they can no longer escape with the alcohol, here's a thought. One of the, we, there's a, a, a phrase in 12-step programs called the 13th step. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. The 13th step is when newcomers, attractive newcomers come to 12-step meetings and old-timers hit on them and take them home and have sex with them. So in other words, taking advantage of vulnerable people is a 13th step. Why is somebody who's just stopped drinking now hitting on people at meetings? Because their need to feel okay, their need to escape, their need to get validation, their, all, what they were able to carry out with the alcohol use no longer exists. And now they're vulnerable. And they feel, and going to me, you know, but I go to a meeting and I get to kind of flirt with someone, somebody wants me, then it, all of a sudden it seems like a much more fun thing. So it's not unusual for someone who is a, intensity or pleasure seeker or an escapist to continue to find forms through which they can disappear. But by the way, I want to remind you, we all disappear. We all escape and it's good and we all dissociate. What addicts do is not inherently unhealthy. It's the degree to which they deny, they escape and they try to disappear. It's not that they do it. We all have the need to uh, leave early on a bad day, think about a friend when we're having a bad day and feel better. You know, we all drive down the freeway and miss an exit. I mean, that happens. We disappear sometimes, and that's healthy. When our when our brains are a little stressed out, we have ways of going places. But addicts do it all the time. They're really just not present because they can't tolerate reality in the way that the rest of us might. As we've been talking, and as I know, there's obviously a lot that overlaps between addiction to different substances or different activities, behaviors. Uh, different behaviors. Um, but what would be some of the differences that you would clarify? Well, you know, when I think about being addicted to heroin or alcohol or nicotine, I understand that the body is addicted. That if I don't continue taking the heroin, I'm going to go in withdrawal. I'm going to become angry, crazy, sweaty, miserable. And so it will make me feel better. There's a physical addiction to certain chemicals. And the, there is some thought that, well, you can't be addicted to something that doesn't physically addict you in that way. If you don't have profound withdrawal symptoms, for example, then you probably don't have an addiction. But then I would say, first of all, you have to define what withdrawal is. When I see people withdrawing from compulsive behaviors, they get very depressed, very lonely. They have a lot of emotional and some physical feelings, not the same as withdrawing from heroin, but they've been dosing their brains with the intensity around gambling or whatever for a while. And now when you take that away and their brain resets and doesn't have all of that, woo, every night they're going gambling or sexing, life is not going to be as fun and they're going to have some withdrawal experiences. But there is a question in the culture, how can you be addicted to a behavior? It makes sense that you can be addicted to a substance because your body becomes addicted to it. But how do you get addicted to a behavior? And what I try to explain to people is, um, imagine that I work with drug addicts, okay? When they make a decision to use, they don't necessarily have the drug in their hand. Maybe they just got a paycheck. But when they start thinking about getting the drugs, they call the dealer, they're on the way to the dealer's house, their heart is pounding, their pupils, they're excited. In other words, if I know I'm going to get my drugs and my dealer's there and I got the money in my pocket, I'm all over it. Well, also your brain is literally already releasing the chemicals. That is correct. And that is the point. I am already releasing dopamine, serotonin, yeah, oxytocin. Even just thinking about the, it before. Well, and that's so, and this is what people don't have struggle with. 
can a fantasy change your thinking? Of course. You have a bad day at work and you start thinking about your wonderful new date and how much you love them and how much fun you're having. Your mood will shift. Your body will, the neurochemistry will shift just because you're thinking about that person. So why wouldn't you think that if you're driving downtown and you're having a miserable day and all of a sudden you think about, wow, I really want to get high, you're going to get excited. That excitement and arousal around using means the person is high before they get to the drugs. And that arousal process is what compulsive gamblers struggle with, what compulsive sex people struggle with. It's They get caught up in the emotional arousal and the fantasy and the intensity and the excitement about what they're going to do. We call these process addictions, uh, food, gaming, gambling, etc., because it isn't just getting the drugs that's the high. It's the whole process of organizing the situation. I'm high long before I ever get there. So people can use intense fantasy, especially people who survive childhood using intense fantasy to survive. They have already learned early in life that when they have difficult, stressful experiences, they don't necessarily need to take drugs or alcohol. They just need to start engaging in intense fantasy and escape. And then they start moving in that direction. Before you know it, they're engaging in the behaviors that are related to the fantasies. So not sure how much information you have on this, but I do think it's important. Do you... Do- I guess I'll just ask you anyways. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I was sitting next to somebody at a Gottman Institute uh, certification training course, and a clinician next to me worked at a recovery center. So I asked him what the success rates were, and when he told me that, you know, 15% of people make it one month, it was just so jarring. And, and as somebody who has had people close to me who have experienced this, and obviously I read up on this, I'd really just love to help listeners understand how much of an ongoing process this can be and how much it really entails versus what I think people might assume or how unrealistically they might innocently hope it to be. Well, of course you want that loved one to go into treatment and come out and never have that problem again. I mean, who doesn't? But that's much more of a medical model where you go in and you have a something that needs to be cut out and you get the surgery and you come out and you're cured. And that's not really what this is. What you'll find if you look into the research around addiction uh, recidivism is that if someone has been through a treatment center, it is most likely that when, if they go back out to drugs or alcohol, they'll drink less or use less. They'll drink or use in less dangerous situations. They have more awareness than they did of the problem. They're not done with a problem, but they have so much awareness, which is part of treatment, we flood them with it, that they're unable to act the way they did without at least some conscious knowledge of how it's affecting them. And so people tend to be more tapered in their experiences. So some people need to go to treatment a few times before they are able to stop altogether. Other people can stop because they simply have the support in a 12-step group. And if you ask me what defines that, I'm going to say it's specific to the individual. Um, But Recovery, I don't, I don't, so if you gauge recovery on, uh, is it fixed and it's never going to be a problem again? I don't think that's a realistic or a very well understood concept. If you look at it like, wow, this person's like a diabetic or someone who has a chronic medical condition that they're always going to have to pay attention to and that might flare up at times. And if they don't start paying attention to it in the right way early, it might flare up quickly. Then you have addiction, which is more like I have to learn what it is how it affects me, how I have to... I may not leave the treatment center knowing how to live my life sober. I might need to be out in life and struggle a little bit before I figure that part out. So I think the mis... Well, I think there's a couple of disconnects. One is that treatment... The treatment world is out of control. It's overpriced. It's uh, poorly managed. 
It's uh, every treatment center on the internet looks like every other treatment center on the internet. You really don't know what people are treating. Everybody does equine, everybody does massage, everybody does yoga as if that was what treatment was. And so I think because of the corporatization of my field, we've lost a lot of the value that we had. Um, I'm glad to be an expert in this field because I think that's what's needed now is those of us who really understand the work to guide it um, and to to help promote the understanding that we don't cure people, um, but we really do help them figure out how to live a healthier life and they can choose to live that life one day at a time. Okay, well, I think that's all we have time for. So thank you so much for joining us. It today. has been so cool. I love being here. Thanks. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.